Hi, welcome to season two of Trained. I'm Ryan Flaherty, Senior Director of Performance at Nike. I train some of the world's best athletes, like Saquon Barkley, Russell Wilson, and Marcus Mariota. At Nike, we believe that greatness isn't born, it's trained. And training is more than just a workout. Each episode, we'll bring you conversations with leading experts in what we call the five facets of training. Movement, recovery, sleep, nutrition, and mindset. Today, we're focusing on how creating time-bound goals are crucial to improving grit, and how important grit is to not only success in the gym, but in all aspects of life. And there's no better person to talk to about that than Professor Angela Duckworth, whose work has changed the way we look at talent versus work ethic. You're listening to Trained, presented by Nike. I do want to encourage people as they reflect on the past year in preparation for making New Year's resolutions to reflect on the positive. Reflect on the times that you did actually eat what you said you wanted to eat and the t- that, that week that you went to the gym every time that you said you were going to go to the gym and you know the times that you felt like you were interpersonally the, the person that you wanted to be. That's University of Pennsylvania researcher and professor Angela Duckworth. Angela is the daughter of a scientist who frequently noted her lack of genius. Today, she's a celebrated researcher and professor with a BA in neurobiology from Harvard, an MSc in neuroscience from Oxford, and a PhD in psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Angela's early eye-opening stints in teaching, business consulting, and neuroscience led to the work she explores in her book, Grit. In the book, she hypothesizes that what really drives success is not solely talent, but a unique combination of passion and long-term perseverance. Among her most valuable insights on grit is that grit can be learned, regardless of IQ or circumstances. Before we get into the interview, I wanna talk to you about the book's impact on my own training with elite athletes. The grit that Angela talks about in her book plays a massive role in the lives of many of my athletes most of the time without them knowing it. Angela defines grit as passion and sustained persistence applied toward a long-term achievement, with no particular concern for rewards or recognition along the way. When I think of grit, I can't help but think of one of my athletes, Deshaun Watson. Deshaun was one of the top rookies in the NFL last year. He entered the NFL highly touted from Clemson University, and he had just led his team to a national championship over perennial powerhouse Alabama. But the Deshaun that people watched on the field was not always the famous, soon-to-be top pick in the NFL draft. He was a young kid from Gainesville, Georgia, whose life could have gone in a lot of different directions. Deshaun grew up in the projects of North Atlanta with a single mom. She worked her butt off to support the family, but they lived with very limited means. Deshaun didn't have many examples of how to make a path to success in life. But his grit kept him going. Deshaun was a 3.8 GPA student. When his mom was diagnosed with late-stage tongue cancer his sophomore year of high school and couldn't work, Deshaun picked up the slack. He worked several evening jobs, including filing papers and cleaning a legal office. Deshaun's coaches and teammates never knew. Neither did his teachers because his schoolwork never slipped. He was on the honor roll all four years of high school. And by the way, he won a few state championships along the way and set multiple all-state records in Georgia. The rest of Deshaun's story is history. Not only did he make it to the NFL— but his story of mental resilience traveled all the way to work done of the Atlanta Falcons, who was impressed by Deshaun's grit and built Deshaun's mother a new home. Deshaun's story is one of the best examples of grit that I've ever seen from an athlete I've trained. 
So the next time you see Deshaun throw a touchdown on TV, remember that he didn't get there on talent alone, or through privilege, or by chance. He did it because he had grit. He was able to live in the vision of his dreams to play in the NFL, and not in the circumstance that his family endured growing up. We all have that inside of us, but you have to tap into it. You have to find it. And when you do, really anything is possible. As the year comes to a close and you ready yourself for the start of 2019, keep that in mind. Your mind is a muscle. Train it. Angela, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really happy to be talking to you. For people who are listening right now as we get into kind of the talk of your your work, can you define in your in your words what grit means and how you define it? In my words, and I should say this is how I define grit doesn't mean that's how everybody else thinks about this idea, but I think of grit as the combination of perseverance and passion for really long-term goals. I mean, in in a, in a word, it's stamina, right? Like staying committed mm. to something that you really care about and working really hard toward it. So you've talked before in, like in your TED Talk, you mentioned that how little the scientific community knew about grit prior to the research and work that you had done. And in the past five years, how have you learned to teach it? Like, how would you give advice to people like myself who work with athletes and, and, and other coaches, how, how to teach it to other people? The way that you teach grit may be different than the way that you teach somebody, you know, like how to solve a math problem or even like how to, you know, do a better backhand in tennis. Um, Because it's not just, you know, oh, like move your hand like this or like divide by three. Um, I do think that grit is teachable, though, or maybe a better word would be coachable. Mm -hmm. Um, You can model it. And I think you can help basically people develop an understanding of of themselves, of um, of of what it is to be gritty, and in a much more complicated way, frankly, than like teaching somebody how to do a math problem. You know, you're kind of cultivating in them the kind of awareness and understanding that, over time, I do think will help someone develop their passion and their perseverance. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So one of the things you've worked on is is your grit scale. Um, and you've tested all types of people on the scale from students to CEOs and first-year cadets and athletes. Um, are there any other shared traits besides grit that make these people successful? I, of course, as a scientist, you know, have a specialty, which is grit. But I, I love this question because I absolutely do not think that grit is the only thing that, that somebody would need to uh, be successful and certainly to just be a good person. Right. So um, mm-hmm. there, there are things that uh, people need that are totally different from grit, like honesty and integrity, um, empathy and compassion, um, genuine empathy and compassion, which seems to be sorely lacking in the universe <laughs> these days. Yeah. Um in terms of success in particular, um, I'll, I'll just um, call out one thing, right, among many, which is judgment. You know, many times people ask me, like, how do you know when to give up, right? And, um, and they might expect me to say, never give up. Like, literally, just keep trying uh, until you're dying breath. And, and that's the advice. No, that's not my advice. In fact, I think we need to use judgment to decide when to give up. Um, what I don't like seeing is when people give up on, you know, on a bad day and they're, they're quitting in a moment of emotional weakness. I think you should give up on good days with clarity and rationality. But you do need judgment. In other words, um, there, is, <laughs> there is such a thing as being wrong uh, mm. and being right. And, um, and there 
therefore you need skill. Skill and knowledge are part of judgment. And um, part of judgment you can outsource to another person. So if you're really struggling, like, should I stay in this job? I'm kind of miserable, but like maybe it's just my boss and you know, maybe it won't last or maybe I'm approaching things the wrong way. I think you have to rely on your judgment, which comes from skill and knowledge, but you can also ask your best friend or your girlfriend or your spouse uh, or your mom, um, somebody who has an outside perspective whose judgment you trust. You know, so many people, um, it's hard. I mean, being, being in, a, in the performance world and training athletes, I think when I talk to a lot of people who are, you know, training for their health and training for longevity and, and you know, tr- just trying to get to a healthy weight or, or reach a few kind of small goals around their diet and lifestyle, one of the things that I find that they struggle so much with is kind of just tangible micro steps and goals. They, they try to, they tend to make things too, too grand, too large and too long of a period of time to try to stick to something. Um, and one of the things I'm big on is trying to get people to find little tiny micro changes, micro steps, just pick one little thing and do it for one week and see how it goes. What is your advice with people who are going to be approaching kind of the, their new year's resolutions and trying to stick to a plan or diet? Um, and, and how, how can they be successful in that, um, in that endeavor? Let me begin by saying I think you're right. I think you're exactly right. In in the jargon of psychological science, sometimes these are called distal goals, like really big, abstract, long-term, and then proximal goals. Yeah. Um, or sometimes you can call those small goals like sub-goals, right? Because they're just steps along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, what is found is that um, breaking up a big project, like I want to lose 10 pounds, I want to you know be at a certain level of fitness, into smaller and smaller and smaller parts. And you might ask the question like, well, how small? And, you know, is there such a thing as a a goal that is too small? Um, And I haven't yet found it. In other words, people who zero in on like micro goals, you know, just like just the very next baby step um, with exquisite, you know, specificity, but like it's almost such a small goal that it's like doesn't seem that it's going to be all that challenging. I mean, I think that's a beautiful goal. So, for example, if you have the goal of, you know, um, running a marathon, right? I mean, you got to break that goal into like tons of sub goals, right? It's like, you know, and so anyway, I just ran a study, a random assignment study where teenagers were basically taught exactly what you said and almost exactly the language used, like take the big thing that you want, break it up into smaller parts, like now break it up again, now break it up again. Okay, now write down the little fragment that you broke it up into. Um, And we are finding, especially with kids who are old enough to really understand this, like kids who are 18, um, that they they really benefit and they actually improve their academic performance. And then when we look at like which kids really benefited, it was the ones who were more and more and more specific. Mm. I've heard several people say recently about how often you should look at your goals or kind of put them in a path that you're going to see every single day, whether you write them up on your mirror or you put them on your phone. Um, do you, have you seen any success with that type of stuff of seeing your goals daily? You know, I haven't actually done that study, but I I, am, I generally think that people, um, you know, you wonder why anybody writes anything down, right? I mean, can you imagine if if you had to remember everything that you you know, like you had no notes, you know, you have no right. notebook, you have no journal, you have no, um, it's it's actually just a wonderful way of externalizing all this stuff that's in your head, which which you might forget otherwise, which you might get confused about. So I, for example, on post-it notes have written down all the goals that I have. I don't do this every week, but I've done it periodically. I think it's a great self-reflection. I call it a goal pyramid. So I take these post-it notes and I write down the things I'm trying to get done, you know, that week, right? And they're very Mm -hmm. specific, you know, return that call, finish that manuscript. Um, And then I try to think about goals that are a, a bit longer term, maybe things that I hope to happen within the year. And then maybe, you know, five years out, and 
I actually go all the way up to, I have one lifetime goal, and that is to use psychological science to help kids thrive. And I see whether my pyramid is really a pyramid. I mean, are the things that I'm doing this week lined up with the things I hope to happen this year? Are those lined up with the things I hope to happen the next decade? And is that life lined up with my life goal? The things that don't line up, I should not be doing. Mm -hmm. And it helps me pare away the goals that are really not that important. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's awesome advice, which leads me a little bit to the to the next uh, thing I wanted to talk to you about. I I talk to a lot of my athletes. So a lot of the athletes I work with, um, like I'll use the example of NFL athletes. Um, I start working with them as they graduate college and they're going into the NFL. So in in that gap between them finishing college and, and going into becoming a professional. And one of the biggest things I focus with them on is for a lot of their life, they focused on the result and the outcome and they, they, they forgot what it means to focus on process or they just never have learned it before. They've gotten so far on talent or, you know, a lot of different things. But I, I think one of the big things I've seen in the most successful NFL players that I've worked with and the ones who are, you know, average or ones that flush out are the ones who can focus on process and not result and outcome. So a lot of what you're talking to kind of talks to that a little bit of, of not getting so caught up in the end in the end goal and the end finished, you know, outcome and result, but in the day-to-day passion and the process and the daily mini goals and habits that add up over time to to some something great. And so how do you teach that? How do you talk to people about that? And is that even something that you think is is important? I, I've noticed the same pattern that it's a, it's an orientation, you know, our attention. It's an interesting thing about attention. You know, we can only pay attention to a tiny fraction of our experience. For example, like over a trillion more bits of information enter the retina than can be processed consciously by the brain, right? So mm-hmm. there's got to be some huge gating thing. And we're paying attention for, for, for what purpose? Well, I think in sports or any other um, performance domain, you know, what you pay attention to, therefore, I think should be an intentional decision, right? Since you can't pay attention to everything. Yeah. And it is interesting, this pattern that very high performers, almost paradoxically, you could argue, are not looking at their ultimate outcome performance as much as they are the process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how did I do in training today? You know, you know, what was this day like compared to yesterday? Not like, did I win the gold medal? Um, right. Now, I want to be fair here because, as you know, athletes want to win. And so it's not that they never look at the outcome or the scoreboard or the stats. I mean, they do, but it's not crowding out the bulk of their attention and consciousness and daily experiences about, you know, right now in this moment, you know, am I at my best? You know, am I breathing right? And, you know, how am I doing um, against what I'm supposed to be doing? So I, I think the pattern is true. I think it's not just sports. I think it's in all domains of human performance. And I think that um, what that enables you to do uh, powerfully is, first of all, focus on what you can do something about, right? The process is the only thing you have control over anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, you're, you you don't know what's going to happen, but you know what you can do right now in training, right now, because you're right here. This is where you can act. Um, and the other thing is, I think it allows for small wins. So I think process, attention to the process enables you to find those small wins that actually um, sustain your motivation. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Angela gives us a few tips on how to set realistic New Year's goals. Today, Angela and I are deep diving into understanding and improving mindset. But mindset is just one facet of training. If you want to learn more about all five facets of training, check out the Nike Training Club app, where you'll find unlimited free workouts and holistic guidance from Nike experts. It's a great way to stick with your training goals, no matter how much time you have, where you are, or what's going on in your life. 
Download it now on both Android or iOS. I wanted to move a little bit over to, you know, you, you founded the, the Character Lab at Penn, um, and it's the nonprofit dedicated to study of character development. And, and I think the big thing f- I want people to hear is your research isn't limited to grit. You've done a lot of work on, on self-control. H- how is self-control and grit related? Self-control is a cousin of grit, so they're very related. So I'll start off by saying um, that people who are grittier in my research tend to be, on average, um, I can predict that they would be more self-controlled and vice versa. But they're not perfectly correlated, so you do find people who are really gritty who are actually quite uh, challenged uh, when it comes to controlling their emotional impulses, their eating impulses, their spending impulses. Um, And then the opposite, which is, you know, there are people who have like, uh, you know, great control over all these impulses, but they don't have a passion and they're not especially hardworking or resilient. So I do think they're different. Um, Where self-control really matters, and I think this is related to health and fitness, we need self-control to basically, anytime life presents us with a choice between something which is fun right now and from that's something that's like better for us even like 10 minutes from now right you know mm-hmm. um so it's not really about lifelong passion but i think just in life for so many of the kind of just routine things that we need to do we do need to control impulses that would be immediately gratifying um so that we can do things that are you know better for us and for other people and I think it all ties into what we were talking about earlier, which with process and present and doing what you know, what's most important right now for me to get closer to the goals that I, I'm having and self-talk. Because if you think about it, if you were to ask yourself in the moment, is this going to help me get closer to the goals that I've set for myself? And the answer is no, then, you, then that's the self-control you're talking about, right? I mean, that's the thing about self-control is that you need it across like almost all domains of your life, no matter whether it's related to your core calling um, or not, right? I mean, the thing I can say as a scientist about self-control is that, first of all, it is one of the best predictors of like how long you'll live, um, how how healthy you'll be, especially as you age. um, And, uh, you know, whether you're going to take your, you know, pharmacy medications, like your, your, you know, the things your doctor tells you to do. So, so uh, the second thing I would tell you that in addition to self-control being like enormously important across a range of just basic life functions is that it's a trainable. So um, one of the most important scientific discoveries about self-control is that um, people who are very self-controlled have strategies. Um, these are not strategies they were born with. They are strategies that they learned. So self-control is enormously important, but even more uh, you know, compelling is maybe the scientific discovery that you can practice your self-control and become a smarter self-controlled person. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, so often we're told or assessed or told, you know, a data point about ourselves that is basically saying, oh, well, this is where you are in life and sorry, but you know, good luck with that. It's like the best part about what you shared with grit and with self-control is that they're trainable that you can improve them. And so like when you talked about the strategies and those hacks of of self-control, can you dig deeper into like what some of those are? Yeah, I think of them actually in in uh, four. There's basically four categories of tricks or hacks to be more self-controlled. Uh, the first one is 
it's called situation selection. You basically choose to be with people and in places that bring out your best. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so for example, you know, like if you're one of those people who like can't not eat the French fries and is always like feeling regret about, then do not go to the restaurant that serves <laughs> the thing that you are going to regret later. Right? It's like yeah. situation selection, or you know, choose your friends wisely. Like that's ancient Greek wisdom. But but I do think that there are people who probably bring out our best and we're our kindest with them. Or or, you know, we train with them and they bring out our best because they're really competitive and that's great. So situation selection is a first family. The second one, situation modification. Once yeah. you are somewhere, you can kind of like fix it or um, manipulate it. Um, that works all very well with cell phones. It also works with um, food. So for example, you know, you're not going to move out of your own house, but you can actually put the fruit in a very prominent place on the counter in a very beautiful bowl. And you can put the Halloween candy in the freezer or like whatever else you're trying to hide on a high shelf. That's a second family. Mm-hmm. The third family are attention strategies. So this is basically looking away from things that you're trying to avoid, um, look away from it, turn your back on your, like, you know, move your uh, gaze to what you're trying to do more of and away from what you're trying to do less of. Um, and uh, the fourth strategy is, you know, basically changing the way you mentally see something. So for example, if you frame exercise, there've been research studies on this um, at the University of Chicago. When people are going to the gym, sometimes people go and they're like, oh, I should go to the gym, so I should do something important and effective. That's a that's a frame. That's like a way of thinking about going to the gym. There are other people who go and like, going to the gym is fun. This is like me time. This is like gonna be awesome. Like I'm just gonna have fun. Now you might think that like, well, you know, self-control required to go to the gym. So the best way to think about it is like, how can I get the most out of these next 30 minutes? But actually, it turns out that motivation is greater when you actually enjoy it. So the kind of make it fun frame is actually a a better frame in the long run. And so that is a way of like, you know, not changing your physical environment, but changing the way you're thinking about your physical environment. So situation selection, situation modification, attention, and then mentally framing. These, uh, these are the four strategies that people can use to be more self-controlled. That's so good. That's so helpful. That, that, that just takes it a le- level deeper for people who really want to work on this. Cause I think especially as we go into the new year, this, this, this stuff is gold. So thank you. That's, that's great. So how would you say successful people process failure differently than, than I, you know, people who quote unquote, aren't, you know, as successful? Failure, I think, has to be taken as a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, nobody goes to the Super Bowl wanting to lose, but um, there's two things about failure, right? Well, failure means you took a risk. And I think the, the, the thing is that about most people is that they're not out there failing. They're out there, like, not doing anything, right? So, so f- people who are failing are doing something, and that is a beautiful thing. Like, they, yeah. are, they are trying. They're, they're in the arena, Um I love what Teddy Roosevelt said about staying in the arena. And the idea is that you have a choice between being in the arena with, you know, dirt on your face and making mistakes, you know, taking the wrong steps. The choice is between that and staying in the stands as a critic. So that's one thing about failure. You're trying. The second thing I'll say about failure is that um, there is an emotional response to failure, which um, is very strong and, you know, is probably like deeply wired. And, you know, we fear failure. And so there is a lot of growth that needs to happen for a human being to be able to take failure as just information and to say, look, you know, 
I am going to take that loss on Saturday or like not making the team or not PRing in my last, like I'm going to take it as what it is. It's information. And therefore my job is to just learn as much as possible, but it's not automatic and kids can't do it very well. And, you know, we grow up and we learn to do that. Yeah. Last thing I want to get into with you is we're going, you know, coming up on a new year and people are obviously setting goals and resolutions. But also, I think part of this time for a lot of people is reflection and looking on the past year and what we did wrong, what we did right um, and where we can improve. Um, I wanted to ask you and get your take on improving mindset as we all move into 2019 of how you think people what can people do to kind of reflect on the past year um, and use those lessons to, to help them moving forward? I love that you have the idea of goal setting beginning with a reflection, right? Because one of the most common mistakes that I see when people set goals is, you know, they set goals and then they do or they don't meet them. Very often we don't because Mm -hmm. that's like life, you know, Uh, but they don't really like go back and reflect, right? Like it's just, you know, and then, you know, then they set new goals, but there isn't this step where you have to reflect on like, okay, what what happened? What just happened? Um, And what can I learn from it? So I do like the idea of starting the new year by looking looking at the past year and reflecting. And I think maybe one of the most important things I would say here is that we tend to focus on problems. It is human nature to focus on what went wrong and all the goals that you didn't actually follow through on and your bad days. There was actually a paper written in psychology, very famous. It is literally called bad is stronger than good. Um, We have a kind of preoccupation with our failures and our mistakes um, that in part is adaptive because we're supposed to learn from them, right? And we talked a little bit about how failure has lessons to teach us. But I, I do want to encourage people as they reflect on the past year in preparation for making New Year's resolutions to reflect on the positive. Um, this is called solution-focused uh, reflection. So you reflect on the times that you did actually eat what you said you wanted to eat. And <laughs> the t- that, that week that you went to the gym, every time that you said you were going to go to the gym. And, you know, the times that you felt like you were interpersonally the, the person that you wanted to be, you know, you were finally humble for a second, right? Like, great. So solution-focused framing lets you basically reflect and then learn from the wins um, and then try to basically have more of those wins by seeing if there's a pattern. You know, for me, I've reflected and I, you know, I realize like I am just so much nicer when I sleep enough. Like, you know, I think like, you know, I could think about all the grumpy days, but I can also think about the good days. I'm like, oh, that's what I should do. I should set my alarm, which I do. I set my alarm at 10 o'clock. I really try to treat it as if it were, this is at night. I set the alarm to go to bed. It's my go to bed Mm -hmm. alarm because that's the pattern that I see. My good days have this feature. So in setting New Year's resolutions, try to double the number of good days by repeating the things that led up to those good days. Angela, thank you so much for taking the time. I know how busy you are and this has been incredible. I think people are going to get so much out of it. So so thank you very much. Thank you. I loved this conversation. Thank you so So much. Thanks, Angela. I always love talking with Angela, but if there's one thing I want you to take away from our conversation, it's this. I think the best part about both grit and self-control is how teachable they are. And I know that Angela's four key tips for teaching self-control is something that I want to share with all of my athletes. Just to recap, number one, self-selection. Choosing to be with people or in places that bring out the best in you. Find like-minded friends, people who have the same goals as you, and surround yourself with them. Really ask them to hold you accountable and for their support. And second, 
when you're at a restaurant or when you're going places, try to avoid places where there is bad food or things that you're trying not to eat at that time. If you don't have the option to eat it, you won't. Number two, situation modification. If there's something in your environment that's keeping you from achieving your goals, change it. Maybe it's committing to going to the gym in the evening if you're not a morning person or picking a playlist that you exclusively listen to while you work out. Number three, attention strategies. So literally looking away from the things that are tempting and instead focusing on your goals. If you want to improve your sleep routine or mindfulness, turn your attention away from your phone and instead try to close your eyes and meditate before bed. Number four, changing the way you see things. If you think of cooking healthy meals as something that's hard or just not worth it, try to think about it in a positive light. Maybe it can become a family activity or it's an opportunity to try something new. Remember, you have the ability to change your perspective and attitude. Things don't happen to you, they happen for you. That small little change in the way you say it to yourself or those words will alter the way you look at events that happen in your life. We can all use these four tips as we think about our New Year's resolutions. And I hope they stick with you throughout this year as much as they stuck with me. Trained is produced by Nike Training Club Pro. To join the premier network for fitness professionals everywhere, go to nike.com slash ntcpro. The best of Nike, exclusively for trainers. We'll be back next time with a special two-part episode to continue that conversation and learn more about how everyone can improve their training in 2019. I'm Ryan Flaherty. See you then. Consult your doctor before engaging in an exercise program of any kind. Use good judgment and common sense about your own fitness level and ability when engaging in a training program. If something doesn't feel right, stop immediately and seek medical attention as necessary.